We're going to jump into this. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, as we've read, we're looking at how are we equipped. What has God done for us, given us, to handle the, the things of this world? Now, you have to look at this from two different standpoints. The way this often gets taught today is what has God equipped us to help us get through the troubles of this world? In other words, what has God allowed for us and the tools has He given us to get our best life now? Forgive the expression, I'm not knocking the book. I've never read the book. I don't know anything about the book. I know the title of the book. That's all I know. But it literally is how do you overcome the obstacles in your life? How do you become an achiever? How do you reach the greatness? How do you do this? How do you do that? That is not what Paul is instructing Timothy. You've got to understand what's happening. Timothy is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a hot mess. And he said, listen, you need to understand something, Timothy. He's giving instruction to him. He's pastoring the largest church at that time. They estimate around 50,000 people. No PA system. How on earth can you have 50,000 50, people in your church with no Facebook Live? How do you do it? I don't know. But he did it. Timothy was a young guy. And he was trained, but he wasn't the smartest guy out there. He didn't have the education to say, Paul. But he was a willing servant, and he was also obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And those two things together can accomplish much. But here, he's telling him, he's like, all Scripture... Just turn back to that. It was, it's inspired by God. So what I'm telling you is we can never get away from this. I know I say it week in and week out, but we do not act like what the Bible says is true. You know how you can tell what you really believe? It's the way you act in a situation. Example, firemen believe wholeheartedly that the equipment that they are wearing will protect them from the fire. You know how I know? They run into the fire. If they did not believe that, they don't run into the fire. Make sense? So if we believe that all Scripture was inspired by God and was given to us for certain things to equip us for every good work that comes from God, then our behavior should model that belief. And if our behavior does not model what we claim, then what we claim is not really what is sunk into our heart. We have intellectually accepted something, but we don't really believe it. Bungee jumpers believe in that rubber band. I think they're nuts too. Like, I like that. Solid. Okay? Me and gravity don't get along real well. And also, me and elastic cords... I'm asking a lot of elastic, all right? But the thing is, is they, what about people jumping out of airplanes? They believe in the parachute. Because if they're wrong, it does not end well. So you, your behavior is modeled off of your beliefs in every aspect. And on Wednesday nights, we've been hammering the concept of worldview. And the idea of what the, the two worldviews, we're either divinely created by somebody with a purpose or we're a happy accident. Boy, whew, that worked out all right. But the way you act is a result of that belief. If you can accept in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth, everything that comes after that is really easy to believe. 
Because that one's hard. Because there was nothing, and now there's something, and something doesn't come from nothing, so somebody made the something. And if that is true, then he really kind of rules over the something, and maybe we're subject to him. But if you believe you're the result of a cosmic accident, and you're like, whew, we're lucky, I made it. I was one of the cells. Go team. If you believe that, your behavioral model be modeling that because there is no uh, consequence for your action. So you act differently. What we believe dictates how we act. You're going to see that today. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brother, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. And therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to stop here for a minute. I will get into more details about the church in Corinth, but I would strongly encourage you to look at the uh, context of that nation, of, of the church of Corinth, and what was going on in that area. Because it will make this make a lot more sense. You see, we tend to spiritualize everything. But he's dealing with a lot of nonsense and a lot of bad beliefs that he is correcting. So, just understand that. Verse 4, there are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are difference of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one in individually as he wills now if you believe that this is true then you should have a confident expectation that God will give something to you and a utilization for the profit of all people specifically here mentioning the church but ultimately using it in different activities that you would have outside of there if you do not believe this as this is something that was at one time but has now ceased to exist then you have no expectation that God is going to intervene in any way in your life or if he does, it is strictly because his will was for you to make it through said circumstance or to not make it through said circumstance. You guys following me? Your beliefs matter. When you read the Bible, your pre-held uh, convictions, I guess, will dictate how you interpret that. What we should be doing is throwing those out and saying, okay, well, I'm reading this like it's the first time and I'm putting this in the context of everything else I've ever read. I'm going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So if you believe that the manifestation of the Spirit is no longer given then you will ignore the rest of this stuff. Now, there are, in this passage, nine gifts. We talked about some of these, so let's go through these quickly. You have the revelatory gifts. Let me move this stuff out of the way. The revelatory gifts. The words of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and the discerning of spirits. Then we move on. The power gifts. The gift of faith, the gift of miracle, and the gifts of healing. The last one, is the inspiration of the vocal gifts. you got tongues, the interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. Now, why do these matter? What do these have to do with anything? Well, we talked about last week the, the uh, revelatory gifts, right? The words of wisdom, the word of knowledge, discerning of spirits. Knowing the distinguishing features in those, we've learned that there aren't a lot of distinguishing features in those, right? They kind of all work hand in hand. We saw Jesus knew what was in their heart, knew their thoughts. How did he know? Something revealed that to him. The Holy Spirit. The discerning of spirits. Walking in the circumstances and knowing there's an evil spirit behind us. Some will say the discerning of spirits is the ability to see evil spirits. And that may be true also. 
But one thing that we did learn is that Paul did not define exactly what these were. He didn't sit here and say, okay, now guys, here's the technical definition of each one of these so you recognize it. What he said is there's a whole bunch of different stuff that are going on. It's as the Holy Spirit wills given to these individuals. What we know is there was an expectation that these were going to happen. They were already happening. He's trying to bring order to the church. That's what he's talking about. Guys, you're getting a little wild. Let's tamper it down a little bit. So the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, all of these things matter. Now let me give you a few real world examples from my life of different things. Now I told you the story uh, a few weeks ago, the time I'm in Walmart, God told me to pray for this woman, and I didn't want to pray for that woman, and then I didn't pray for that woman, and then I left, then I had to go back because I felt guilty, and then I prayed for that woman, and she cried really loud, and I told you that story. But there have been several times that I have been in situations where the Lord has revealed something specific about somebody's life to me. Here's an example, I owned a rental property over in Nebraska. Okay, and I had a tenant there, and she was the junior high band teacher, single gal and all of that, and the Lord put on my heart one night, just go talk to her. Now, she grew up Catholic, and you know what happens when you grow up Catholic? You're Catholic. You don't have to go. You just are, and so that was basically the scenario for her, and as I'm sitting there having a conversation with had nothing to do with anything spiritual, because I didn't know why I was there, the Lord revealed something to me, that she had been cutting herself, but not like you typically see where they cut their arm. He showed me she was cutting behind her legs because then nobody could see her. This is an adult woman, a teacher of the school. And I sat there, I talked to her, and I said, this is going to sound crazy, but this is what the Lord just showed me. She starts bawling because nobody knew. How did I know? I don't know. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit walked in and said, hey, look over there. It was just something that I knew. Now, what was going on there? Well, there was some, a lot of stuff going on. Where I prayed with her and all of that, and I've lost track of her. She's moved away a long time ago. But the thing was, is the Lord revealed something to me in that moment. There's been many times as I'm, I'm ministering to people or praying or whatever, the Lord reveals something to me, or He gives me a word for them, something to speak out to them about a situation. Now, can that be abused? Sure it can. So because people abuse that power, should we throw out all the good? No, what should we do? We should discern. Fair enough? Those are just just a couple of examples. But let's get into these, what we call the power gifts. Now remember, Paul did not segment these. We did. We try to put them in a way that we can understand them and, 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 and list them together. The thing is, is while I have compartmentalized these three and each into a three group, they are a cohesive unit. They are intended to be used together. All right? Just because you maybe have the gift of faith, and we'll show you that, doesn't mean you will always walk in the gift of faith. It's as the Spirit wills. It can come, it can go. There'll be times, you know, I don't walk around all the time meeting people and the Lord just showed me something about them. There was a gentleman I did meet here in town one time, and uh, I didn't know this, but he was an alcoholic. And when I was standing there talking to him, I couldn't smell anything on him. He wasn't drunk at that time. But the Lord showed me that he was an alcoholic. And the reason that he was an alcoholic is because of an accident that happened to his brother. And it killed his brother. And it messed him up. So I revealed that to him. Why? Why is the Lord doing that? He's trying to get a hold of somebody. How do I know that? Again, this doesn't happen all the time. It's not like I'm walking around and be like, oh, look at you. I mean, truthfully, if I could choose things to have God reveal to me, one of them would be the Powerball numbers. Because I don't consider it gambling when it's a sure thing. Right? Right. 
I mean, like, because gambling can be bad. Like, if you bet on Oklahoma yesterday, oh my goodness. <laughs> you need prayer stand. That's why they got the flags in half. Listen, would everybody give Stan a hug on the way out the door? Here's the first time in a long time I can say this confidently. Oklahoma lost yesterday, and Nebraska didn't. So I haven't been able to say that for a long time. So when we look at these different gifts, the gift of faith, the gift of miracle, and the gifts of healing, let's begin to break these down. Now, the first thing we have to understand is what is faith, and where do we go for that? Well, we start in Hebrews 11, obviously. Let's go there. Hebrews 11, chapter 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. And by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen are not made by things which are visible. Now let's stop there for a minute. Let's break this down. Because we heard this ad nauseum so many stinking times that we glaze over when somebody turns to Hebrews 11. And yes, we will read verse 6. Just bear with me. First of all, let me point out, you'll hear this preached a lot because it preached really good. Now faith is. Faith is now. While that statement is true, that is not the point. He is transitioning. That's all it is. He says this many times in the book of Corinthians. Now, faith is what? It's the substance, which means it's something, of things that are hoped for, but it's the evidence of things that are not seen. So it is something that we are hoping for. That is the substance of things that we do not see. It's not talking about atoms. It's not talking about gravity. It is talking about the belief that what, in this case, what God has promised will come true. That is the point of the chapter. By it, by what? By faith, the elders, who are the elders? Everybody that came before them, what they would call the fathers of the faith. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. In other words, all creation started because, and God said, right? Why is that by faith that we understand that? It's very simple. We weren't there. So if you, as, okay, let me give me as an example. When I tell you a story of anything that has happened in my life, even the far-fetched ones, you're believing my stories by faith. Why? Because you weren't there. But if you were there and you saw them happen, is it by faith? No. Does that make sense? Some of you look confused. Let's try this again. Okay? I know it's early. I know it's rainy. We're going to try. Maybe everybody's bummed, Stan. They're right in there with you. Maybe that's what the problem is. It's by faith when you did not see it. In other words, if you're an eyewitness testimony, you have an eyewitness testimony. Did Peter believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead by faith? No, because when he was told that, he initially didn't believe it. But when he saw it, he watched him die. He probably watched him go into the tomb, and then he saw him standing there. Is it by faith for him? No, he watched the whole thing take place. You guys following me? So for us, we believe that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. How do we know that? Through Scripture. So we are standing in faith that the Word of God, in this case what we refer to as the Bible, is a true written down document that was uh, maintained for all of these years to give us the evidence that we need. You guys following me? Now, in this, there are three types of faith, because the gift of faith and faith are not one and the same. The first being conversion faith. 
What is conversion faith? Well, simply put, it is your belief in what Jesus has done for you. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 10, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast, because we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So how are we saved? Well, we are saved by grace through faith. In whom? Jesus. Why? Because it was a gift. So the grace of God has been bestowed to us. We receive it by faith. It's not off of anything that we can do. We bring nothing to the table. We weren't saved by good works, but according to verse 10, we are saved to good works. Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So, here we know that the gospel of Christ, which Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of this, is what is the power of God to salvation. Anybody who believes gets this. It is the righteousness of God. So what is it? It's the gospel. How do you believe the gospel? By faith. Better question, how do you define the gospel? Now this is the interactive portion. Here we go. Y'all ready? If I go and ask somebody, what is the gospel? We just had this conversation last week with the kids in the back. When you ask somebody, what is the gospel? What is their initial reaction? Most people that grew up in church will say, it's the good news. And my response is, that's fantastic. What is the news and why is it good? And their response is, um, usually starts with an um. And the reason is, is we simply regurgitate what we hear, but we never sit and think, what does that even mean? Because the term gospel is used all the time. But we never stop to think about, how is the gospel defined? And what I tell people, and, I, and I'm guilty of this as well, is we hear something so much, we just, we just believe it, we've adopted it as truth, we've never questioned why it is we believe it. This is one of the things I teach people when you're bringing up your kids, don't teach them the what's of the faith, that's good, but don't stop there, teach them why we believe it's true. Because the kids that just know what, what to do, what not to do, where to go, are the ones that go crazy when they get out on their own many times, because there is no foundation it's one thing to know what, it's another thing to know why, right? So all of these things matter. So what is the gospel? Is it clearly defined anywhere in Scripture? Well, as a matter of fact, it is, thanks to Paul. He's pretty good at spelling things out. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. This is where you turn anytime you get the idea, what is the gospel? Verse 1, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. So now he's going to tell us what it is. He's declaring it right now. Which I preach to you, so they've already heard it, and you also received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. So whatever this gospel is, is what saves them. If you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, if I ask you again, what is the gospel? Your response is, well, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. Now you can drill down from there, but that is what it is in a nutshell. And you know what the key part of that is? It's according to the scriptures. Which tells us something very powerful is that everything that we hold in our Bible is laid out ahead of time. 
realizing that the idea of the crucifixion on the cross was prophesied 500 years before the cross was invented. Like that form of corporal punishment did not exist. That's pretty powerful when you think about it. So now we know what the gospel is. But look what he goes on in verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. But some have fallen asleep. That means they were dead, not that they just fell asleep, okay? After he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one, uh, by one born out of due time. When was he seen by Paul? He was cruising down the road and Jesus interrupted his trip. Now, what does he just do? He not only declares to us the gospel, that Jesus died, was buried, resurrected according to the scripture, then he gives a list of people who all watched this thing take place. And basically saying, if you don't believe me, go ask any of them. Over 500 people saw him at one time. Now, hallucinations happen. Group hallucinations do not. It's not how it works. I don't know, maybe the government's figured out a way to do it now. I don't know. The other part that I find very interesting here, and this is a side note. So you see here that he said he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Who are the twelve? The apostles. Then he goes on, uh, in verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Who are all the apostles? Apparently there were more than just the twelve that carry that name. Sidebar. Just interesting. So now we know what the gospel is. This is the conversion faith. Romans 3.28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of law. Romans 5.1. Therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All of these things are through what? Through faith. This is conversion faith. We believe what Jesus has done. We have accepted as the truth. We have repented of our sins. And now we are saved by faith. Then there's another part of faith. It's called continuing faith. So you're born again, but this is the faith that we exercise on a daily basis. The acceptance of what God has said as truth, and it mandates the way we behave. So look back at Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now watch verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. Now, what was it about Abel's offering that was so much better than Cain's? You come on Wednesday nights, I'll tell you. But the bottom line is, is that whatever it was, Abel knew how you were supposed to come to God. And because of that, it, it made his actions matter. Cain went differently. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek them. So there's two things here. Without faith, can you please God? What does the word faith mean? It literally means trust. So you have faith in the bungee cord. You have faith in the protection. If you wear a bulletproof vest, you have faith that it will take a bullet. I don't, but you might. I am not interested in finding out if it works. I tell people all the time, there are things in life that you got to take a chance on. You know how you find out if they don't work? It blows up on you. That's why I don't work on my own vehicle. So by faith, we step in by trust our hope. Our trust is acknowledged in God. We cannot please Him without it. He who comes to God must believe what? That He is, 
In other words, he is who he is, says he is, and he rewards those who seek after him. How does he reward them? Gift of the Holy Spirit is one example of that. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to, to faith. Now think about this for a minute. No one lived in a world that never rained. God says, I want you to build this massive boat. It's going to take you 120 years. Truth be told, most of us couldn't dedicate 120 minutes to something without getting distracted. But he was so moved by what God had said that he dedicated his life to the building of this thing. Let's go on, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he received as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for that city, which is foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So when God said a word to Abraham, did it impact the way he behaved? Absolutely. He moved. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful, who had promised, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they have, had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So all of these people died in their belief, looking to the future of what God had promised them, not receiving the promise. Now, what is the promise? Ultimately, that is Messiah. All these people were waiting on that. They knew about Messiah coming. So again, what do we see here? It is the continuing faith. The what you believe impacting how you behave. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What did Peter just say? Basically that your faith is in him. Why is your faith in Jesus? Did you see him? No. Think about that. You see, at some point, those of us in this room believe the word of God, whether you read it or it was preached to you or however it got to you, that we are all lost sinners in need of a, sa a Savior. And we have put our faith in God. And Peter goes on later to say that he's talking about that the living dead doesn't matter. Our faith and hope is in God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have all put our trust in Him. So, should we as believers fear death in any way? No. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Should you cry at a funeral? Maybe. One, if you know them and you know they love the Lord, yeah, you might miss them, but boy, they're better off. No more taxes. <laughs> Hallelujah. But if they didn't know the Lord, we have nothing to fear. No matter what happens, we have nothing to fear.
You see, we have a saving faith. We have a faith that we continue in. It impacts the way we act. Think about this. The predominant view is, is from a charismatic standpoint is the idea of tithing. Does tithing make sense from a natural standpoint? Take 10% of everything you earn and give it away. That's how you get rich. No, it doesn't make any sense. But yet you're putting your faith in God. Yes, Lord, I know I could use this. PlayStation 5's coming out. I could really use this money. I'm looking at you, Jared. I want you guys all to shame him and to not buy him the PlayStation 5. He doesn't need it. He's a college kid. But we, we do it because we're like, Lord, you provide for me. You might use my job as my source. You might use my business, my farm, whatever. But it's ultimately you that provide for me. So no matter what the market's doing or what the economy is doing, I will give faithfully unto you because I know you meet my needs. You see, see, your faith impacts the way you act. That's the bottom line. I've said this before, but you find out where you stand when, when you walk with the Lord, when you get punched in the mouth. When a crisis hit, your reaction will tell you exactly where you are, and you should use that as a tool to grow. But that's not the faith we're talking about. We're talking more of a charismatic faith, a gift of faith, because there is a faith given to each and every one of us, an ability to believe. But that's not what this is talking about. This is in line with the gifts of the Spirit, and this is where it gets interesting. Because you'll see here shortly that this seems to be some sort of a spontaneous thing. And it functions as this divinely enabled condition that involves much more overtly supernatural activity. Now, I'm sorry I cannot define this well. Because Paul did not define this well. I have every intention of walking up to the man and say, could you spell it out a little better for us next time? I'm going to do that. That's my plan, all right? I already told God, so Paul's probably been pre-warned. I'm going to deal with him. You see, there are things in Scripture that talk about what faith does. In Matthew 17, verse 20, says, Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. He's dealing with an exorcism. But he says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, does it take much? No, but it takes a whole heart of trust in God. It does something. Matthew 21, verse 21 and 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, Surely I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believe and you will receive. So there's a faith element to this. Mark 11, verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever does, uh, says to this mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. So therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. So again, there's this believing, this ultimate trust in God. I know it's weird, I don't know how to do this, but God, I know you got this. I know you can take care of this. I can walk in an element of faith. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, because we're talking about in, in chapter 12, chapter 13 here. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So this faith aspect, again, talking about uh, the ability to do things. It's a wholehearted trust in what God has promised. That's really what it comes down to. You begin to see this take place in a couple different places. Let's look at James chapter 5, verse 15. Well, let's start at verse 13. If anyone is among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. So if you're suffering, what does he say to do? Seek the Lord. Pray. Why would you do that? Because you believe God will answer that. Cheerful? Sing psalms. Among you sick? Let them call for the others of the church. 
let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's the key. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. The prayer of what? The prayer of faith. Prayer and trust in God. Special faith enables a believer to trust God to bring about a certain thing, a certain aspect, a certain expectation that can only be explained supernaturally. That's really what it comes down to. And this is what it's talking about, this gift of faith. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of examples that I personally believe. These are my thoughts. I'm telling you up front. doesn't mean I'm right. But there's something in these that I see that seems to be like something triggers them to step up in a situation. The first one we're going to start in is in Acts chapter 3. You guys know the story. In fact, I think we read it last week. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayers, the ninth hour. A certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now, think about this. Daily he's gone there since he was a child. This gate was likely walked past by Jesus. He's still lame. This is interesting who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. So what's he looking for? Money. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. Now he fixed his eyes. He stared at him. Look at us. He gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. He's looking for money. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. Peter saw it. He responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why look so intently as us, as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? I'm going to come back to that. This, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Let's break this down. He stared at him. There's something that triggers Peter. Remember, this is in the early moments of what we call the church. Have you ever walked up to somebody who could not walk and performed this? Me neither. Would you? Me neither. Should you? Okay. You see, there's something about it. But something happens here. And it's the part that got me. He fixed his eyes on him. Something drew his attention to this man. He's probably walked past him dozens and dozens of times. But today was different. Something triggered him. He says, look at me. I don't have any money. But what I have I give, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he didn't stop with his words. His beliefs made him reach down and grab him by the hand and pick him up. Something triggered him. Is this what we call the gift of faith? I happen to believe so. Could I be wrong? Certainly. This is my opinion, okay? There is nothing to confirm this. Thanks a lot, Paul. Now, back at verse 11. 
All the people see this. They're all shocked. They're amazed. What do signs, wonders, and miracles do? They get people's attention. I've told you before, you can argue with me theologically about a belief in a verse and all of that, but you can't argue somebody standing up out of a wheelchair whom you saw with your own eyes. Actions matter. They're greatly amazed. And what does Peter respond? Why do you marvel at this? Why do you look at us as if by our own power or our own godliness, we have somehow made this man well? There's two things there. We have no power. He's giving glory to God. And it's not because we're a certain standing with God. He goes on. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Who is that? Yahweh. The God that they are there to pray to and ultimately sacrifice to. He glorified Jesus. Then you get down, you killed him, God raised him, and we were the witnesses. We watched it all take place. His name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong. Now here's the thing. Did the lame man have faith in the name of Jesus? Was he looking to get healed? Did he sit there and like, you guys, you used to hang out with that Jesus guy. They killed him. He came back. Now he's gone. Hey, can you help me out? I'd really like to walk. No, he's like, hey, I'd really like a sandwich. You got any loose change? So did he have faith in the name of Jesus? No. Whose faith was it? It was Peter's. Is this something supernatural? I say maybe, okay? But to me, it seems as if something happened there. All faith is alike in nature, but it seems to this gift of faith or this special faith is something different. It's like in a moment you have a ridiculous boldness that doesn't make any sense. And I'll bet if you begin to think about it, there may have been times in your life where you walked into a situation just ridiculously confident in it, knowing God was going to do exactly what He had promised. If you think back to the time. But let's look at another one. Acts chapter 13, verse 8. But this is Paul. But Eliamus, the, the sorcerer, for his name, so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked intently at him. And he said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand, and the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What was the net result of the sign, wonder, and miracle? Somebody came to the Lord, right? But look what he said there. He looked intently at him, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he says something. He said, you're going to be blind. There's like this, that's a pretty bold statement. It takes as much confidence to make that statement as to look at a blind person and say, you're going to see. They're one and the same. The hand of the Lord was upon How did he know that? My guess is, is somehow the Lord told him that, and he had the faith to believe it and walk out. Is this an example of the gift of faith? I can't say for sure, but when I see that same term, looked at him intently, there's something there to that. I don't know what. Again, I, I, we're, we're speculating a little bit. But the one thing that seems to, I seem to notice here is that the gift of faith and the gift of healings and these miracles seem to be hand in hand. So we want to isolate these into one individual gift, but I don't think you can because I think they work all together. Now let's go on to the gifts of healings. Now what you may notice and I want you to see, it is not, we got the gift of faith, 
We got the word of knowledge and all this stuff. But he says gifts of healing. It's plural. 1 Corinthians 12, 9. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Look at verse 28. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healings, helps, administration, varieties of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 30. Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Gifts is plural. Now, this is where it gets confusing, is if you're not confused already. Is we know what Mark 16 says. Believers lay hands on the sick, they will recover. We know what James 5 says. Call for the elders of the church, and the prayer of faith will make you whole. So why is this isolated? Can somebody walk around and have a gift or the gifts of healing? In other words, they walk in this all the time. Well, apparently, there is something to this. But what's weird is that healing was so common during the book of Acts, really, that these cures seem to be something that's outside the normal biblical pattern. What do we normally see? We see laying on of hands or a declaration made forth, and as a result, somebody is made whole. That's typically what we see. But there are examples of some weird stuff that goes on. Okay, let's look at Acts chapter 5, verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. No question about that. They were all done with one accord in Solomon's porch. So where were they taking place? The temple. Lots of things going on. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, so at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Can we all agree that Peter just walking through the street in a shadow hitting people, and they're being healed, you wouldn't bring them out if it wasn't working, is a little weird. It's a little different. Is there something that was going on in Peter's life enabling this? There has to be. something. Has your shadow ever healed anybody? Neither has mine. It has certainly cooled some people. That was a fat joke. You guys missed it. It's all right. I've noticed that, you know, when I go to games and I get a slug of children standing down sun from me when it's hot. So there's something, uh, there's something different here. Look at Acts chapter 19, verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. What is an unusual miracle? I don't know. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. They're cutting up handkerchiefs. Hopefully they were clean. This word actually seems to mean something about the apron that he wore. He was a leather worker. I don't know. Wasn't there. Again, I'll ask him when I'm correcting him on how he wrote. But anyway, the thing is, guys, something unique is going on here. Unusual miracles. He says that very clearly. Is there something about this that is involved in the gift of healing? Something unique about them that God has bestowed upon people? Certainly there's something to it. I don't know what it is. I'm sorry I can't be more clear than this. What I'm telling you is, is no matter how well we define it, what we know is God gets glory in it. It's supernatural. It is not us. So let's talk about the last one, miracles. What is a miracle? Again, terms we throw. We know what a healing is. You were sick, now you're not sick. 
We also see healing used that you were tormented by evil spirits, and now you're not tormented by evil spirits. We will talk about healing more, but there is something to this evil spirit aspect we'll get into later. The bottom line is, what the heck's a miracle? How do you define a miracle? Well, if you look up a definition, it's an event or action that apparently contradicts known scientific laws and is hence thought to be due to supernatural causes, especially to an act of God. Can you think of a miracle in the Bible? Well, I can think of one. A dead guy is not dead anymore. That breaks all the rules of dead guys. Not how it works. Here's another one. Peter walked on water, as did Jesus. I tried this. did not work. There's something going on there. There's these it's outside of the confines. If, if miracles just happen all the time, like every day, it's no longer supernatural, or I shouldn't say supernatural, but no longer miraculous because we just come to expect it. And to an element, we should do that. But if I were to go up on top of the church building and say, guys, I'm going to jump off, and guess what's going to happen? I'm going to fly. If that happens, and that's a big if, I think we'd get everybody's attention. See, there's something to the idea of what miraculous things do because they get a hold of people's attention. That is why when miraculous things happen that aren't truly from God, they still get people's attention. I had a, a, a friend of mine who believed some weird stuff. I say friend very loosely. And, and she absolutely believed that her dead grandmother lived in her house. You know how she could tell? Her grandma's old rocking chair would rock. Could be no natural circumstance that could cause that, wind. I asked her if the windows were open. She said yes, but it was grandma. It wasn't grandma. I mean, but, but she, she fully was persuaded by that, absolutely convinced that it was her grandmother. I don't know what, because the rocking chair rocked? I mean, if it was my grandmother, the only way I know it was her, my great-grandmother, really, because I didn't know my grandma very well, is that there was a switch involved, and I was getting whacked on it. So if I'm walking down the house of the stairs, and somebody hits me with a stick, and I don't know where they're at, I'm like, it's great-grandma. She made me pick my own. Did anybody else ever have to do that? I didn't even know what a switch was the first time I went to visit her. I learned quickly and never wanted to play with it again. So a miracle is something outside of the norm, something that defies the laws of logic, the laws of reasoning, the laws of understanding, maybe gravity, the laws of anything that we expect. You know, like with the day the earth stood still and the sun was up for a lot longer? That's not how that works. There's something supernatural. It's a miracle. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to things that we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Acts 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Now this is where it gets weird, okay? Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, had come to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to worship. Was returning and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now stop, you've got to understand something. Ethiopia was not Jerusalem. A eunuch was a castrated male. Because he had no interest in it, couldn't bear children and had no interest in, in other chasing after that kind of thing. He was fully diverted, devoted servant. But he was one of great authority. Why did he go to Jerusalem? To worship. 
So there was something about this man that knew in Jerusalem was where Yahweh was, and this is where we go to worship. So in some way or another, he was a believer. But for a Jew, they did not like eunuchs because they had caused damage to their skin and to their body. This was something that was considered taboo, and you can understand why. But it was considered, it was something to do with false god worship and all that, a lot of times why they did it. So here he sees this, and what in verse 29 happens? The Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? Now, all he knew, Philip knew, is to go, right? He didn't know why he was going. He just knew to get over there. He sees him reading, says, do you understand? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and sit with him. And the place of scripture he read was, he was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before a shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now here's a question. How did he know about baptism? You guys ever thought about that? How did he know? Because the New Testament wasn't written. He may have not known who John the Baptist was. How did he know about baptism? Well, remember, again, keeping everything culturally in context, when they became a follower of something, a Jew, or in this case, he was a, what we would probably consider a proselyte Jew because he believed in Yahweh, would be baptized as a legion, showing a sign that I am a follower of this. These guys got baptized all the time. They'd mikvah, stuff like that. But why John the Baptist was baptizing people is you were following of the precursor of the, of the Messiah. So the Essenes would baptize people when they became an Essene. The Herodians, the same thing. This was a common practice. So he knew about it. So he is making a declaration of the world, I am a follower of this Jesus. And Philip said, if you believe in all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's the declaration. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. This is pretty typical. He leads him to the Lord. It's how we would determine it. Then he baptized him. Here's where it gets fun. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the city till he came to Caesarea. Imagine, if you will, that you're being baptized. And you go into the water, and the dude's right there. And you come out of the water, and the dude has disappeared. That is literally what happened. Beam me up, Scotty. He's teleported. Forgive the, the term. Is this a miracle? Listen, I would give anything for this ability. Anything. This would be amazing. But there was something in this moment. And thankfully, Luke gives us no other details Besides that, he says it in passing. Yeah, here's what happened. Now on to the next thing. Again, I got a lot of talking to do with these boys when we get there. Look at Acts 20, verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, I've never done this to you. You're welcome. You think I'm long-winded. All right? Midnight. You know what midnight means in Greek? Too stinking late. There were many lamps in the upper room where they would gather together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, 
who was sinking into a deep sleep. So Paul's preaching is putting people to sleep. So I'm in good company. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. This is sad. But Paul went down, he fell on him, embraced him, said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And now when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. That means they were a lot comforted. So what just happened? Paul apparently is long-winded. The dude falls asleep. He falls out of the window and dies. I have never preached somebody to death yet. Doesn't mean it won't happen, but so far, so good. And these guys, I mean, you can imagine what's going to happen. They see this take place. If we were there, what would we do? You rush to the man's side, right? These guys knew dead bodies. They knew it because they dealt with them. Unlike what we do, where if somebody dies, we call the coroner and they come and take them away and they deal with it. These guys dealt with the dead bodies themselves. So they knew what one looked like, felt like, all of that kind of stuff. And Paul did what any sane human being would do. He laid on top of him. And then he just says, don't trouble yourself, his life is in him. So did Paul resuscitate him? Did he perform CPR? I've literally heard that. There's something miraculous taking place that is outside of the norm does it take a certain kind of faith to do this oh, i would say so and then he gets up and walks. the thing is guys is when we look at these we have to understand what is taking place all of these things are doing something they're operating in the individual life we're seeing a small sample size of what takes place these things were greater they were they were all over the place they still happen to this day i hear stories about this all the time of different things that take place. People rise from the dead. I, I hear stories about that. Does that mean that every story is true? No, certainly not. But does that mean that every story is false? No, certainly not. But these miracles, these things that were taking place, there was something supernatural. All of these, you notice, are starting to tie together. Now, Paul is specifically talking about how we use these things in the church, and, and he gets into that in verse 14, or chapter 14. But we see these things operating in their day-to-day lives. The words of wisdom, the knowledge, the gift of faith, the miracles, the healings. There's something that was going on there. And there's an expectation that you and I should be walking in the same thing. So it, going beyond the intellectual part, the way you believe will impact the way you act. You know what the biggest heartbreaker for me is? is that when I find out somebody is sick, even to the point they're expecting them to die, and I'm not talking about an elderly person that's just ready to go. That's a different scenario. I'm talking about somebody that their time really should not be up. And I'll call and ask, can I come and pray for them? And they'll tell me no. And the reason they'll tell me no is because they don't really expect anything to happen. You see, there's a belief today that God is up there and we are down here, and there is really no interaction between the two. And that is really the way people think today. Because if they truly believe what Scripture said, that when somebody young is dying, why would you not receive prayer? And I don't mean just dying. I mean, I don't care if you got a head cold. Whatever the case may be. Like, why? Your actions are predicated upon your beliefs. You find out really where you stand and what you believe based on the things you do in a situation you're in. 
You guys with me so far? You guys getting this? I know this is kind of technical, but I, we've got to understand what these are and what they are not. These things can happen in day-to-day life. There are people in here that have multiple examples of stuff that have happened for them and stuff, and you might get to hear some of that stuff uh, in the weeks to come, but I'm telling you what, here's what I know, is that God has equipped us with everything that we need, not to have your best life now, but to be his servant and to be his imager on this earth. Just like Jesus did and what he said, that greater things will you do because I go to the Father. Not necessarily greater in, in like manifestation, but maybe greater in volume because we're here longer. Is that there was an expectation of the early church that the Spirit of God was moving upon individuals and impacting the world around them supernaturally. We've lost sight of that because what we think is that when we come together, that's where the supernatural takes place. And that can happen. But the supernatural was always taking place in the streets, in their day-to-day lives. So we're going to finish up with these nine next week. And we're going to see how they all tie together. And then we're going to drill down a little bit deeper on some of this other stuff.